Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Insider, brought to you by the lovely people at Vanishing Inc. Today on the line, we are lucky enough to have the one, the only... Actually, I need to start off by questioning something. Is your name Carl Coppertop or Carl Hine? It's Carl Hine. <laughs> <laughs> the one and only Carl Hine. Carl, what's your origin story? You have 28 seconds. <laughs> uh, well, I saw a magic show when I was a kid. Got a uh, Walt Disney magic book from Mickey Mouse. I think he performed every trick in the book for my family. And then it was just a progression of magic shop, magic conventions, and you know, getting paid to do gigs. And uh, I don't think I ever remember wanting to be a magician. It just kind of happened over time. And uh, I never <laughs> let that train stop. So. Now, Carl, Magi Fest wasn't that long ago, and your bar magic set got incredible reactions. How was that experience for you? It was a lot of fun. It's always fun performing at uh, conventions like that, and uh, Magi Fest is a pretty unique one. Uh, it was a really, really great experience. You came on the retreat with us to Costa Rica, and the guys had you surprise everybody by performing a close-up set at the Waterfalls. Tell us about that. <laughs> well, it was a bit, bit of an unusual performing uh, area. I was, I was, well, you know, I, want, I wanted to show some stuff because Andy had talked about his multiple selection. He's got a great DVD set out called Revelations, mm. and and uh, I have a lot of work on multiple selection stuff. So he had done a lecture, and then I wanted to basically point out a few different options. So I was trying to force certain things into a routine I probably shouldn't have done, like, you know, trying to do card on box on the floor. <laughs> but, it was, but it was a really fun th- you know, situation. Unusual. Yeah. What's your creative process? Because with some of your marketed effects, they're handlings of other people's ideas, mm-hmm. like the Pat Page stuff with um, Heine 500. And other releases are wholly original. Are you more drawn to creating or solving problems or... What's your process? It's definitely more of a problem-solving uh, creativity. Uh, I take things that I see that I like, but then there's always little problems that I'm trying to fix within that. Sometimes that leads to a very different thing. Sometimes that leads to a small change that makes a big difference. Because uh, right. sometimes the smallest little detail can make a difference between whether I choose to do an effect or not do an effect. And likewise, when people buy effects, it's the same type of thing there too. Sometimes a very small change can make a huge impact on the audience's response to it and also the Mm. performer's ability or desire to perform it. Sure, sure. Be broken up, can be shortened really short or extended out to longer sets. So things that have multiple moments of impacts, multiple kickers so that you can stop at any point in time, but still you have a lot of, you can do a lot of moments of magic in a short period of time. Sure, no, that makes sense. Um, As one of the what should we say, founding fathers of modern cube magic. How do you feel watching it evolve the way it has over recent years? Makes me sound very old. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I, I'm older than you. Yeah. So <laughs> well, no, there's, it certainly is uh, a little bit frustrating uh, when you, there was something that only me and a very few others were doing for a very long period of time. Not mm. everybody's doing it, and, and that place is, you know, now you go to get booked to perform and other people are before you're doing some of the, some of your stuff and it's always problematic but in my real normal performances unless i'm at a magic convention it's, it's rarely an issue what's your opinion on uh, cube gimmick stuff cube gimmick stuff well i think there's uh, pros and cons to everything uh there's a lot of really great cube gimmicks out there now henry harris has a whole line of products mm-hmm. that are great and i think you know all his and Greg's and a lot of the other ones that are out there are really well made and they have their very specific purposes um, but I think it's also important for many situations to be able to do something without that sure. uh, for a variety of reasons especially in your close-up or parlor environments where 
where I perform at a lot, people are very touchy or the situations that arise where you need to be able to just leave something out for examination or pass something out for examination. And you just become more limited when you use some sort of gimmick. Yeah. But there's also a, a strength to it too. I mean, there's, a, there's certainly methods and effects that can be created with gimmicks that you can't do without them. So it's, uh, it's hard to say which is better or worse. It really comes down to personal preference. Yeah, sure, sure. You are a true worker magician. Um, talk about the importance of performing regularly and often. Uh, well, I think magic is the type of art that you, uh, your audience is kind of your canvas. So unless you have an audience, you're not really practicing <laughs> and you're not really doing it, you know? So I think yeah, yeah. that uh, that's a, a really important thing to getting the timing of things down, to getting the eye contact down, to getting a whole variety of things around the trick itself. You have to be in front of people to, to get that all down to science. And sure. it's not an exact science, it's something that's always modifying and changing. As you grow older, as you change your character, as you perform for different people in different environments, the slightest changes can make a difference. Yeah, 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 no, that makes sense. When do you, in these corporate and private party gigs that you're doing, when do you work out how you can bring in something new? How, how do you, when you want to bring in something new, how do you go about doing that? I just kind of do it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> obviously, a lot of that stuff is sandwiched around other stuff. Um, gigs that are, I've got certain gigs that I do a lot where I have a lot of regular people that come back and see me. Uh -huh. um, I have a couple country clubs I do that are kind of like re you know, high-end restaurant gigs, kind of, so to speak. Sure. Uh, and so those types of places are great places to work in new material where a lot of people have seen you do a lot before and you can try out new things. Or places where I'm going to be doing uh, well, I know I have very short sets, for example, where I can only have maybe three minutes per, t per table or per group because I have to try to get around a lot of people. Uh, okay. I'll take a new effect and I'll just work that one effect in over and over and over and over and over again. So by the end of the night, you're... Yeah, by the end of the night, it's, it's solid, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you do bar magic, close-up and parlor. Who's influenced you in each of those genres? Uh, well, I think I, my main influences are the type of magicians that I think are really fun and entertaining and also have a you know, high degree of skill and uh, magical abilities, let's say. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people that first come to mind are David Williamson, Bill Malone, Tom Molica, uh, Chad Long, you know, guys like that that have that similar style and, and performance character. Uh, you know, for bar magic, obviously, Doc Eason and Eric Mead and Bob Sheets is, is, are, are really amazing performers in that environment. Uh, uh, and then, you know, I think all those guys can kind of do a little bit of everything. So mm. that's, you know, I follow kind of along the same lines. Yeah, no, fair enough, fair enough. What magic on the scene today excites you? Mm. Uh, I think any time I see something that is new and exciting or a really a clever twist on something that I, sh I should have thought of <laughs> it's always <laughs> something that i get excited about you know i think that's the same for a lot of guys you know yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. and that oftentimes comes in waves. so there'll be times when there's nothing out there that i think is really all that great but then you never know that things, things all of a sudden a whole bunch of things come at once a lot of it has to do with how how involved you are in the community and up to date you are and, and i go at waves of, of being very in touch with the community and other times kind of being more away from it so it all depends. Do you think that 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 do you think having that break kind of helps helps you revitalize? I think it's just pros and cons. It all depends on what you, what you're looking for. Uh, I think mm. that that it's good to do for for certain things for sure, uh, but it's not. I think it's also good to keep in touch with stuff, you know, and what's what's hip and cool, especially if you have some business done in the magic world itself. 
Are you working on anything new at the moment that you can share? Um, well, I guess I've got lots of old stuff that's new to everybody else, but uh, nothing in particular. <laughs> the, the newest thing I've been playing around with recently is just a version of Three Card Money that, uh, you know, okay. uh, uh, it's a kind of a variation of uh, Garrett Thomas's Stand Up Monty, uh -huh. which has just been fun to play with. So I've been doing that a lot at my walk around strolling events. How do you see yourself as your audience sees you? I read an interview with you in prep for this when you said that you should do that, that you should try and see yourself as your audience sees you, but you didn't go into how you can do that. Uh, well, one, just to ask them, <laughs> obviously, but you can't do that with everybody. It just has to be you know, people that you're a little bit more comfortable with. Uh, a lot of that is really just uh, being realistic about how they're responding to what it is that you're doing uh, uh -huh. at every stage in the process. So, you know, if you're walking up to a table uh, and being aware of their body language, being aware of their facial expressions on how they react to you, uh, and to some degree that can be because of how you're dressed or because of the way you present yourself, some, to some degrees it can have nothing to do with you, it has to do with what they got going on in their own heads uh, or, right. or what's happening in the conversation that you just walked into. So it's a hard yeah. thing to put a exact point on, but I think the more you can become aware of all that sort of th those sorts of things, the more you can really see how your audience is reacting. It's not instead of what they're saying; it's how their body language and the subtler cues are suggesting that they want to be paying attention. They don't want to be paying attention. Uh, they all they all make a difference. And oftentimes, I think people focus on the people that are reacting the strongest and the, and the greatest and ignoring those people off to the sides that are a little bit more skeptical, a little bit more reserved. Uh, and so I think you have to kind of take the whole picture into account. That's very sensible advice, very sensible advice. So talking about um, that, uh, that approach to the table, have you got any tips for listeners on how you do that approach? Uh, I'm, it, it, that depends a, a good amount on the environment that I'm performing in. Uh, right. You know, if you're performing at a private party, a great thing to do is always introduce yourself as the host asks me to come over and do something for you. Uh, you know, if people are expecting you, it's different than if people have no idea who you are walking up. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. those, I think you have to, what you have to be careful about is one size fits all approaches. I think that there, those do exist, but they don't exist for everybody in every environment. And so you have to be a little bit careful and wary of that kind of approach. This is always my opener. This is always the opening line. Uh, I think that um, you might hit a, a good success rate with any one of a, a specific opener, a specific opening line, but it, the the game is always finding what's the best thing in this particular moment. And it's hard to, it's not an easy thing to do, you're going to miss, but the more you can kind of modify what you're doing to the specific environment you're performing in, the better off you'll be, I think. So almost like you were talking about earlier about the selection of material, making it flexible and adjustable is the same with yeah, how you approach it. Yeah, there's always three things you have to keep in mind, who you are as a performer, who your audience is, and, and the venue you're performing in. Uh, and, and as any of those things change, the material you do, and maybe the way you do it, should also change. And sometimes it's very subtle changes, sometimes it's very big changes, you know, so I might do the same trick for a group of adults and do that same exact trick, very different presentation for a group of kids. That's an obvious example, right? But the same can be said for a group of adults and a group of elderly people, right? It, but it's a, it's a less obvious change in your presentation, but the, the rate at which you talk, the rate at which you do things and, and some of the lines you might use might change and alter, right? Or you might say, this trick is not the best situation for this group, I'll do this trick instead.
just and are you editing that, that? Sure. Are you editing that on the fly as you go up to the group? Well, ideally, that becomes just intuitive, right? But there is okay. thought that has to go into that over time, and and I think you know, a lot of those guys are, that are really really good, I think, are the ones that can intuit that kind of stuff naturally, and other people have to work mm -hmm. at it in a little bit more logical section, you know, approach, but. Sometimes you can over rationalize and over reason things, and then things become less entertaining and less <laughs> less good. Yeah, let's yeah. say, so it can sure. happen both ways. Uh, but you still have to put thought into it for sure. You've talked about the importance of getting your audience to like you. Are there any tricks or techniques that you use specifically to get people to like you? <laughs> Hopefully, they just like you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You gotta use tricks, and it's probably not the. You probably have a problem to begin with, right? Uh, okay. So te techniques is there advice that you could give on increasing your likability? Yeah. Well, I mean, to some degree, it comes down to just making eye contact, having a smile on your face. I mean, there's lots of very mm. simple and basic things to and how you approach a table, not getting too close to somebody right away. You know, keeping your distance, and then slowly, if you for certain effects, you might need to get closer to someone, making that slow, uh, and how you turn to the side to do that sometimes versus a direct straight-on approach. Uh, right. You know, it's just there's lots of little tiny things like that. That's a, it's a pretty vast, you know, uh, subject. Uh, but you know, I think that the best thing is just a smile and a positive attitude and acknowledging the situation. You know, if you walk up to a group of, tape, uh, of people in like a strolling walk-on environment and you can sense in that group that people are a little unsure of whether they want to see magic or whether they're a little bit unsure, address that, you know? Often be something like, oh, you seem so excited. <laughs> and just and say it in a funny way, right? Just, just letting people acknowledge, when people know that you're aware of how they feel and how they're reacting, it automatically makes them feel like you are more em empathetic towards them and you're more connected to them, right? And sometimes that can be pointing out the flaws as well as pointing out the good, right? So, and that just, just being present is a really important part of that as well. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Um, you do work, we mentioned it earlier, but you do work a lot at the bar at the castle. There must be at least one or two stories you can share about <laughs> well i mean you have a bunch of drunk people there's going to be you know fun stories <laughs> um there's nothing in particular at the castle that, that really stands out in my mind right now i mean there's lots of famous people have come through and things like that but um and you know some groups just get absolutely crazy and wild uh i remember what one in particular was actually i think in the close-up room at the castle where it was a a group, so it's a buyout. So you have, you know, people that are, aren't dressed the normal dress code. They all kind of know each other, and they're really wasted. And uh, you know, in a, a, a place like the cat in the bar or like the close-up room, I mean, everybody gets up and tries to run away. It's pretty fun. There's <laughs> 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 no place for them to go, so they can't. So, it's really <laughs> <laughs> but that, that, that kind of those kind of reactions I find often happen when you are doing stuff that. Um, seems very spontaneous and completely impossible where it's not like part of what's planned it actually is something that's just randomly happening you know uh, in response mm. to something that they do or the audience does and so when you have a situation like a bar where you can interact with people more versus performing at them it leaves yourself open to have situations that can be truly improvisational and truly only in that one time they only happen now and the whole audience can sense and feel that this is a one-time thing that's happening um, even if there's ways to recreate that to some degree, there are some situations that can only happen in those situations, you know. Is there a way that 
if there's less experienced listeners to the show that you can prepare for that sort of thing or practice it do you know what i mean um a lot of it is just being open to like what's happening in the audience and you know writing down when something happens over and over again um some of it is just being very comfortable with your material so you feel like you're confident that you can vary from your script or vary from your structure of how you normally do things um and sometimes you make mistakes but then when you make that mistake you learn from that mistake and now you're prepared next time right or sometimes right. you think of what you should have said after the fact but now you have that line installed in your head for the next time that happens so for example yeah, at yeah. the at the bar one of the things i do is i produce these ketchup bottles for my hat right but every once in a while, when you start producing three or four or five of them, as I can in that situation, it becomes more and more of an amazing time. And every once in a while, someone will say, oh, can you do mustard? Or they'll make a comment like that. So that's something I'm prepared to do, for example, but I don't always do it. I don't try to force it. It's, it's so much better when someone says it, and then you're like, oh, and I can do that for you. Right? So being prepared for that kind of stuff is great. And sometimes the hardest part is just not doing it, knowing that 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 little bit exists there, but it's you leave it, it just you just leave it for those situations, you know. <laughs> and so, did that come about because once somebody asked you to produce the the, the mustard bottle and you didn't well, have it? Ready? And that situation is kind of a challenge aspect, right? You have a type of person, generally speaking, that's a little bit more skeptical, that is trying uh -huh. to to make a something say something funny and also make it a challenge at the same time. Generally, that's the psychology what's doing. And so that generally those people are kind of the alpha or the people that are around them kind of know that that's the kind of personality that they are. So then when you come back with that and you go, bam, the whole crowd reacts in a crazy way that they don't do in any other ways. That's personal to them and their own group of people. And in yeah. an audience situation where you have a smaller audience, you know, that exudes out from that immediate family or group of people too. So sometimes that person that's speaking up, the whole audience now knows that's that type of person, right? And so knowing how to deal with those different types of personalities, um, that's often a really good way of doing it, right? <laughs> when they challenge you to be, to be able to meet that challenge, it's, a, it's, an, it's an amazing moment that they know wasn't planned part of the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it doesn't sound you do it in a way that's sort of belittling to that person. No, oh, it's yeah, not like no, a heckle stopper, I mean, is no, it? No, because they brought up, yeah, it's not a heckler stopper at all, no. It's just, it's just, you know, when someone says, oh, can you do this? Can you, you know, if you pull a card out of your pocket and someone says, oh, can you pull it out of my purse? And then you do pull it out of the purse, that's stronger, right? So if I say, mm. you know, how would you like me to find your card? And they say, pull it out of your hat. That's a much stronger moment than if I just say, look, your card is in my hat. And, right? Right. And then these situations you can engineer. Of course, with yeah. Experience. So that kind of situation there, there, you know, if I say, Wait, how do you want me to find your card? And I've already pulled the card out of my pocket. They're already thinking impossible location, right? And because I'm wearing uh -huh. a hat, 90% of the time, I would say a good 85, 90% right. of the time, they're going to say out of your hat. Now, when they don't say that, right. you're giving yourself a situation that you could fail in because maybe they say something that's completely impossible, but maybe you can figure out a way to then make that work. In that moment, sometimes your, mm. your problem-solving brain kicks in the gear and you create stuff you would not have created otherwise, right? But you also always have to add that out. You know, it could just be as simple as that would be, a, that would be impossible, but I can do this. And as soon as you produce something, you have a magical moment that then they forget about that challenge, right? Because it was obviously an impossible yeah, yeah, yeah. challenge. Uh, or, or, you know, they say something sure. like, pull, you know, jump to the bottom of the pool and pull out the bottom of the pool. Yeah, I'm not going to do that, right? Uh, so you can uh -huh. always make an excuse why you can't do something, but try to do it. Try to make it happen. 
for example, someone said, might say, make it appear under my phone. Now all the heat's on the phone, so you can't do that. But you can produce their card, and then you can come back mm -hmm. and load it under the phone on an offbeat, and then come back and say, and your card's under the phone. So now it becomes both a callback and a rise to the challenge, right? Which is actually a double impact on that. So, yeah, yeah. so there's yeah, lots yeah, of, yeah. And, and once you produce their card in a different way, they don't expect you to go back to the phone, for example. Right, so now you're, it's a much easier method-wise for you to, to achieve what they've asked you to do, but you've done it just in a slightly different way. It's arguable, but you're probably best known for your Heinstein Shuffle, which was first published yeah. in Genie, I think, and then yeah, released on VHS, <laughs> which probably many of many of our listeners won't even know what a VHS machine is. How did the, that come about? Tell well, us a story. Well, uh, the Heinstein Shuffle was something I created, I think, probably in the late 1990s. Uh, it was based upon some other shuffles, but I wasn't really familiar with those other shuffles. A couple of things I predated that. Uh, basically, using the, the springing action to... Um, uh, simulate a bridge. Uh, Ron Wall was the first to create that. I'm not sure exactly the date, but it's called the Ravelli Shuffle. Um, but mine was the first to actually have like a okay. weave and an unweave. So it's like basically taking the concept of what a zero shuffle is and then bringing it up into the hands and then also giving it that bridge uh, illusion. Um, and it was just something I kind of wanted to do and just kept playing with it. And at first it looked like crap and or, <laughs> just like when, it, you know, when anybody else tries to learn it. I just kept working at it, and uh, over time, I was like, "Oh, this actually looks good." <laughs> it's pretty much that simple, you know. <laughs> I think um, we can announce here that we've got an incredibly exciting collaboration coming up, and for the first time, almost all of your published work is going to be available as a download on Vanishing Ink, and the Truffle Shuffle Two, which, as I understand it, is a mashup of your Heinstein Shuffle and Delgadio's Truffle Shuffle. I saw the trailer for this a couple of days ago and was in awe. It just looks so good. How do you begin trying to uh, to work with Derek on that or to fix the problems with it? How did, how did that happen? Well, you know, I had come up with the Einstein Shuffle, like I said, like in the late 90s, or early, I think we published it 2001, I believe. And uh, okay. and, then, and Derek had you know and Derek and both Ben Earl and Derek both came up with something very similar. Ben Earl's Gray Shuffle, Derek's Trouble Shuffle 2.0, mm -hmm. uh, to address also the the issue of you know how do you create this illusion of a bridge in the hands. And I think their solution was what I really admired about their solution was that you didn't have to do a slip cut or a cover pass. Uh, it was one shuffle and you're done, right. and either you're back in the original order or you've cut the cards. And you have that flexibility with the truffle shuffle or the or, or the gray shuffle to do that, right? And I thought that was a really nice feature to not have to think about anything before or after the move. It just just like just like you don't have to think about anything before or after a shuffle. So I thought that was a big advantage of the Einstein shuffle. Mm. However, I also realized that it wasn't nearly as burnable. Like if you were to put a video camera on it and be able to rewind and analyze it, it wasn't nearly as burnable as the Einstein shuffle was, or it wasn't as um, uh, and, and also a lot of the way a lot of people did it, they kind of showed it off where you would riffle the corners at the beginning. Now there would be a break there. So there's just little small details because in reality, there's always going to be a pro and a con. It's not actually a shuffle. So there has to be a, a discrepancy just as there is with Einstein. And so I just, uh, the Truffle, Truffle 2.0 is my effort to try to fix those problems I had, but still retaining the advantages of the Einstein shuffle. And so it's kind of a, it's quite a bit of a different Smart. technique because of that because there's no slip cut there's no cover pass, also with the truffle shuffle 2.0 but you still have what looks like a cover card so it looks like you don't have to do any kind of wrist movement and it's burnable, it does make it I think 
Yeah, I've, I've watched it and watched it and watched it, and you, you, it's a very close-up shot. Yeah, and I think that you know there's still a little bit of angle problems with it, but that angle that that that's a pretty narrow range. And so it's very easy to adapt that to me. That's completely worth the, that con is completely worth all the pros to it. Cause I can always just completely modify just by angling myself a little bit to the left and uh, yeah, I'm good to go. So yeah, right. it's a really, it's really, it's one I use the most now. Uh, there's times I still think the Einstein shovel is better, but for the most part, it's my go-to. Something that people don't know about you the little bird told me is that you are an expert <laughs> at balloon sculpting. Yeah, something I've done for, for a very long time. I picked up a book at Disney and I was like probably 10 years old uh, and did have done balloons for a long time. I used to have a company actually where I'd ship balloons as gifts all over the country. Uh, people could buy pre-made you know, balloon bouquets of flowers and stuff like that. I don't do it as much, but I still do some pretty big corporate events and bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs and stuff like that. Yeah. But yeah, it's really, it also taught me some interesting things too, because, you know, when you're deciding whether to do balloons or magic in a strolling environment or something like that, I realized a long time ago that, you know, when you're working in a restaurant, I don't really do restaurants much anymore, but when I, when I used to, I always found that balloons was often a better approach than magic because, you know, with one balloon, that was a really big creation that was the best they'd ever seen. You know, just like, you know, when you walk up to a table and you do magic for 95% of those people, you're going to be the best magician they've ever seen. Right. And similarly with, with balloons, if you make it at a certain level to 95% of people, that's going to be the best balloon they've ever seen. And so but the difference is if I perform for one table, that table knows that. If I make one balloon in a, in a social environment, the whole room knows that. And that was from a marketing perspective was a big advantage. Uh, and then the other side of it too was I realized that there's really interesting strengths with balloons and that you can hit emotional appeals. Where if someone has a dog, that's their dog okay. and you can make their dog that hits on an emotional level, it's very different than you can get with most magical effects, right? Or someone has a favorite animal or a cartoon character and you make that specific thing, you're tying in all the emotions around that and all the branding around that character or that animal and the feelings around that to the, and you're giving them all a physical product they can hold and they can take, take away. So I think, you know, you know, similarly in magic, we have certain effects that you can give a physical product out that makes it more memorable. Things that you can do to do that um, it really helped emphasize the importance of that for me one with my magic as well. Uh, and then the other thing I think that's also very interesting about that is that you realize over time when people start seeing you do, oh, you're the best magician I've ever seen. Oh, you're the best balloonist I've ever seen. And you juggle too and you do this. There's a, there's a certain things that people that do multiple things because people have, you know, especially agents and, and bookers try to categorize into very specific categories for marketing and branding. But when you can do multiple things and you have multiple talents that you can exhibit to your clients, it makes you so much more unique and it makes, it really blows their mind in a different way. You get reactions that are very different than you get by doing one or the other by themselves. And that's something that I think only those types of people that, that can do multiple things at a very high level can understand because otherwise you just don't see those kind of reactions. It's, they're subtly different, but they're definitely different. We've run out of time, <laughs> which is awful, but we always end with four quick fire questions, Carl. Are you ready? Sure. Favorite pizza topping? Uh, I like garlic and tomatoes, like a margarita. Favorite movie? Ooh, that's a hard one, maybe. Mm. Princess Bride is the first that comes to my mind, but there's a lot. We can rock with the Princess Bride. <laughs> uh, favorite person or people that like music? Make music. That make music? Uh, probably Adam Duritz, I guess. And finally, who would you rather fight? One massive Andy or a hundred tiny Joshuas? 
Uh, I think you might have to be more, a little bit more specific on the sizes on that one. Uh, <laughs> I think I think either would be fine as long as they're not working together. They make a pretty good team. So. <laughs> Should people want to keep up with your whereabouts? Are you on that there social media anywhere? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, my website's carlhine.com. Uh, my Instagram is at uh, carlhinemagic. Uh, and my Facebook, I believe, is Carl Coppertop. But I also have a Carl Hine uh, fan page. So any of those are good places to go. Perfect, Karl Hein. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Great talking to you.